Welcome to the 29th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Stephen Polanski, author of the new novel, The Bradbury Report. Well, this is uh, Jeffrey Deaver, author of, uh, most recently, The Burning Wire, and uh, soon-to-be author of the next continuation James Bond novel. I spend a lot of time writing, a lot of time researching my books, um, but uh, when I'm not doing that, I, I love uh, listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast, which you can hear at readingandwritingpodcast.com. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Stephen Polanski, author of the new novel, The Bradbury Report, and it's in bookstores now. Stephen, welcome to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, your new book, The Bradbury Report, your new novel, imagines an America where cloning is widespread. However, as you wrote in a new Huffington Post article, your primary interest with the Bradbury Report wasn't necessarily cloning and kind of scientific speculation. So I'm curious, what what did drive your passion for the novel? Well, this is a very very complicated question for me, and I want to, because it's, I have trouble being honest about it. I, I want to say that my principal interest was in, was, was what I take to be, uh, I'm certainly not alone in having this as a principal interest. Uh, I, 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 I understand, as I understand novelists and what they're interested in, I, my interests are not in any way peculiar or unique. I'm interested in human relationships. I'm interested in things like love and friendship and honor and betrayal and, and, and death. But when you start naming these things like this, they sound kind of canned and trivial. But I mean, that's the kind of thing that drives me to write and in, in, in my writing. Though I, I, let me just qualify this, and, and I apologize for qualifying so early on in the conversation, but no writer worth his or her salt, and I'll qualify that. Any of, any of these general pronouncements are usually uh, suspect, mm -hmm. but it seems to me that most writers don't start out thinking, I'm going to write a book about honor, I'm going to write a book about love, I'm going to write, write a book about betrayal. They, they think about a, a very particular localized focused situation that involves one, two, three, however many people that are involved, they put those people in the pot, bring it to a boil, try to keep the lid on it as long as they can, and whatever larger thematic kind of uh, resonance the, the book or the story has is, is not incidental, but it's, I think it's very unwise or even misguided to start with a kind of thematic intention and then somehow build a, a story or a novel around that. So what, what I was interested in the writing of the book, once I stumbled upon, and it was absolutely a stumble, once I stumbled upon the concept, broadly speaking, of human cloning, I was interested to see, given that using that as a given, as a kind of circumstance, what might happen to two or three people caught in the the web of it in one way or another, and what what might it like to try to 
be human and loving and decent and um, reasonable in in those kinds of circumstances. Right. You say does you stumbled. Yeah, it does. It does. You said you said you stumbled upon it. Um, what what was that process like? I, I know that you know many writers hate the question. You know, where do you get your ideas? But it, it sounds like you have somewhat identified that you that you kind of discovered the concept of cloning. I wonder what what was that? How did you do that? And what was that like? Well, you know, it, I don't know if you've ever read Henry James' prefaces to the to his to the 1910 edition. Do you, do you know this? You know what I'm talking about? Um, I'm not sure if I do, but well, enlighten at the me. End of, <laughs> at the, well, it, it's worth it's worth knowing about. And um, it, it, at the end of his life in 1910. Uh, publisher in New York decided to put together a complete edition of Henry James's novels, stories, travel writings, etc. And they asked him if he would write a preface to each volume. And in the preface, would he speak first in every preface to where the, where, where the idea came from? What was the germ of the story? So if you read through these prefaces, which are, to my mind, the best single text for for a writer who's wanting to know what writing is all about they're they're collected in a, in, in, a, in a volume called art of the novel which scandalously is out of print but in any case if you read through this this collection of prefaces he tells you exactly when he hit upon the subject for the ambassadors or wings of the dove or turn of the screw and um you know, they're all very interesting, but 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 by the end of it, you don't believe a word <laughs> that he said. I mean, I, I'm not sure that ideas <laughs> come that consistently and that neatly wrapped, right. right? But but this one didn't come neatly wrapped. I was uh, I had two grown sons, both of whom are smarter than I am, and both of whom I trust, whose taste I trust very much, and we were walking in Central Park. And talking about all sorts of things, very few of them having to do with my writing, which is not a subject they they, they want to get me going on. <laughs> and um, I don't know who brought the subject of human cloning up, except that I know it wasn't me, because before that moment, I had no special interest in the subject and knew about it. You know what? What anyone who is reasonably thoughtful knows about it maybe a maybe a touch less now you know i don't keep a notebook i really should i'm embarrassed to say and and uh, it's probably not a good idea for a writer not to keep a notebook i keep copious notes when i'm working on a project for that particular project but i don't have a notebook that i can go to when i'm out of ideas to find an idea that i had 15 years ago and see if i could you know resurrect it right but but i do know and and this is half true. I do know when when an idea is good. I do know that an idea is good when I can't shake it. And for whatever reason, this idea stayed with me for weeks. And I, and I was resistant. I was really resistant because the idea I had, the the, the fundamental concept was, man, old man meets his young clone. You know, so as it as it is transposed in the book, it's a 66 year old man who spends a year on the run with a, a, 
an, an identical replica of himself at 21 years old, which, you know, I, I not so cleverly claim is a form of time travel and maybe the only possible form of tra- time travel that we'll ever we'll ever know, despite what Stephen Hawking is is now saying. But in any case, here's a 66-year-old man seeing himself again, being in the presence of himself again at 21. And I thought, well, this is a, a wonderful, wonderfully uh, uh, productive concept. But it's, I mean, the possibilities are lovely. But the, but the concept itself, I was always... I was for a long time afraid would be such a high concept, the kind of concept you could pitch to a movie studio in three sentences, you know, and right. walk out with the deal, that that I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to get out from under it, that that the concept would rule the book rather than my starting from there and making something unexpected and moving and and very human out of it. I certainly didn't want it to devolve into car chases and, and high-tech uh, espionage. And, um, you, and so I was, I, was, I was resistant. And it, it was only, and I don't know how, in, into how much detail I should go, but it was only when I added to that mix of two a third character who is a 66-year-old woman. Uh, her name is Anna in the book. She's a woman with whom the main male character, actually all three of them share the stage pretty much equally. The, the man who writes the book, the, who writes the report that is the book that we read, goes by the alias Ray Bradbury. He is 66, she is 66, and they knew each other 45 years before in graduate school in Iowa. They were both studying to be teachers. They had a kind of vexed relationship, vexed in the sense that she had fairly strong feelings for him, and he was kind of a, oblivious and a cad and just a 21-year-old male. And they hadn't seen each other in 45 years. In the interim, she she'd gotten married and had a wonderful life with her husband, who's recently died, and he married the, the love of his life, who died after seven years of marry, marriage, and uh, from, from whose death he never recovered. In any case, they are thrown together again with this copy of this man who is now 21 years old, the copy. And so she is between these two men, one of whom is 66, the man she loved when she was 22, now old as she is now, or elderly as she is now elderly, and a version of him, the version of him, that she fell in love with first 45 years before. She loves them both, differently, obviously. And, um, once I found the third element, I said, okay, now I've got a book that I'm interested in. And I don't have to think too much about the scientific uh, basis of cloning or, uh, you know, cellular uh, reprogramming. I-, I can think about human relationships. Again. The, the humanity behind it. Yeah. Is that, uh, it, it, was that coherent? Yes, it was. It was. Okay. Um, uh, and let me just say this, having said mm-hmm. that, having sort of uh, detailed or not detailed, um, adumbrated the plot of this book, I'm aware that it sounds ludicrously contrived and coincidental and um, implausible. 
in a world with 250 clones and 250 people who have been cloned, the like and the likelihood that and where clones never appear in the world, that is to say they're not allowed out, uh, people are not meant to think, see, meet, wonder about their clones until they're needed for spare parts, the likelihood that a clone would somehow escape and wind up connected to his original, the, the, the man um, from whom he was cloned, is statistically zero. But um, I always think, as a novelist, that um, one of the, 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 the best jobs, the best opportunities we have when we write our books is to take the most unlikely thing and somehow, and it doesn't always work, and when it doesn't, it's a disaster, somehow make it inevitable, not only plausible, but inevitable. And I can't judge whether I've done that in this book, but I hope I have. Right. I know that you know, as you just said, that your that your focus was certainly not not on the high concept or the delving deeply into the science behind cloning. That it was more about the humanity of the situation that presented itself. But I'm curious in the research that you that you did do, where where do you think cloning is headed in the near future? Well, this, you know, this is an interesting question, and if you've read the Huffington Post, you, you know that the, the piece that I did for them, you know that I acknowledge in that piece that my disclaimer about uh, cloning and, and where my real interest lies in the book is somewhat disingenuous, because finally the book is about cloning, and it does engage in whatever debate there is. There's not much of a debate anymore about cloning. It seems to have been... Well, I mean, there's so much going on and so much serious stuff, and cloning seems to have uh, been been backgrounded uh, significantly. But um, you know, the debate is essentially be- there are two. Any reasonable discussion of cloning recognizes two different kinds of cloning. One is broadly called therapeutic, which we know as the use of stem cells um, harvested from existing embryos or uh, cloned embryos and you use them, you, div- you incurred, these are non-specialized cells that have a, the unique ability to turn into anything, any kind of cell that you need. And if you can find a way to get them to turn into liver cells or pancreas cells or heart cells, then you have a compatible organ to give to the person who needs it. And that would, and th- th- there is, there's fairly lively debate about this kind of clone, human cloning. You remember George Bush was uh, adamantly against it. Right. Both, and when Obama was elected, only days after his inauguration, he, he lifted Bush's interdiction on stem cell research in the use of disease, uh, in, in the treatment of disease. And so the universal, the, the, the international community is broadly divided on the use of stem cell stem cells for um, uh, health practice or treatment of disease. There's almost no debate on what's called reproductive cloning, which is taking a hair cell or a skin cell and using the DNA to develop an entire organism identical to the one from whom you've taken the original cell. 
here's the thing. Um, it, it is arguable that since we can develop the organs we need, or presumably develop the and, and I, I suspect we will be able to do this in short order, and in some cases we're doing it already. Since we can develop what we need from stem cells, and since we can clone embryos and then harvest the stem cells from those em embryos, why on earth would we ever turn to the inarguably obscene practice of cloning uh, entire human beings from scratch? And to answer your question, and I've come a long way, I, I don't think it's medical need, as I say in the Huffington Post piece, that will drive us. I think it's the way in which cloning full-blown human beings can satisfy extra medical, non-medical needs that will drive us. These are perceived needs. I don't think they're real needs, but they're perceived needs that people will have. And the fact that the profit, the potential for profit for any entity, be it government, as in my book, or private enterprise, um, that, can, that can meet, that can satisfy these needs through cloning, the profit will be so enormous that once this kind of reproductive cloning is possible, and it may well be somewhere already possible, and if it's not already possible, it's, it will soon be possible. I think once it po it's possible, it will happen because it, it is possible and also because of the, of, of, of the way it, in which it will satisfy what I'm calling perceived needs. Uh, you want me to give you some examples? Sure. If, I think I mean, so. Would that, be, would that be useful? I think so. Okay, let me give you the most the, the example with which you and I and your listen, listeners will be able to most easily sympathize. Um, you're a young couple. Uh, you're having um, difficulty uh, getting pregnant. You've gone through all the fertility tests and clinics, and um, you've tried in vitro, and it doesn't work. And so you're offered this option. You can go to um, a, a clinic that specializes in cloning, and you can look through uh, a catalog, brochure, whatever, an index, uh, which which lists the, the, the originals that you can make a copy of, uh, that you can give birth to and raise from infancy and you choose the child that most appeals to you and then either you bear that child or some surrogate bears that child or in I suppose it's possible to raise that child in a test tube as well and mm -hmm. then implant it somewhere but in any case you wind up with a child that um, you of your choice not just what color eyes or what color hair, but the child, you have a very sure sense of what it's going to be because it's, an, it's a copy of something that already exists or did exist, and you um, raise that child as your own. And it seems to me that that's the, the most justifiable use, non-medical use, or broadly speaking, non-medical use of reproductive cloning. Though, if you think about it, what might well happen is, depending on your values, 
what you prize most highly. You could imagine somebody who prized a couple that valued most highly physical beauty looking at themselves and saying, you know, if we have our own child, this is not, let's say, a couple that is that necessarily can't have children. Right. But decide not to because the child that they will get is not likely to be the child that they want. And why take the child you get when you can have the child you want? And so you go to the same clinic and you choose to clone Scarlett Johansson and uh, you raise Scarlett Johansson, you call her something else, uh, Sylvia Cudahy, but you raise Scarlett Johansson as your child, though she is Scarlett Johansson's parents' child, Scarlett Johansson's twin, however far removed they are in age, and let's say, you know, 10,000 other people in the country value the same thing, and I think it would be more than 10,000 who value physical beauty above all else. And that's certainly scary given our our celebrity culture these days. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine. (laughs) You can imagine. But there are more nightmarish ones. Let me just give you one really – let me give you a a kind of ambiguous one, and you tell me what you think. Let's say you have a child that you adore. He's eight years old, and he's killed in some terrible accident. And now you're bereft. He was your first and only child. And uh, you you want to have another child but you want to have that child again. So it, it will be distinctly possible to clone this people that are deceased, loved ones. You know, you would raise them from infancy again. The clones don't come out fully formed. You know, they're, they're infants. They're neonates. And so you would raise your child from scratch, a replacement for the one you lost. And, you know, I have three children, and I, I'm, I always try to, I've tried to imagine what it would be like to lose one. I think it would be unsurvivable. But let's say I did survive, and then I got the chance to raise that child again. I can only imagine that I would miss the first one more than I ever did, if that makes any sense. Oh, it does. It does. I, I have I have two kids, so I, I certainly, that's that's definitely a conundrum that I think most parents First of all, never want to face, but if they did, it would it would certainly be a a a, a dilemma. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sympathetic and I'm also horrified. And you know, when I think about it, I wonder what it does for for our sense of of the family. For instance, if I can raise my father from infancy, or I can raise my dead wife from infancy so that when she's 20 i'm 80 you know what is our what exactly is our relationship well how would one describe describe are we married are we man and wife are we father and daughter we're neither we're essentially strangers who once were related but are no longer i mean the the whole note all our, our our language our lexicon for human relationships is skewed, thwarted, and we'd have to develop a whole new language, I think, to talk about um, the way in which we are related to other people. And we'd also have to develop a whole new language for talking about the self. What what on earth would the self mean if I could clone myself 20 times? You know, I could perpetuate, right. I could perpetuate me and not my line, you know. I, so th- th- when I started thinking about this, um, I got very uh, nervous and and worried. I, I think 
Um, I think because the appeal will be so great and because the profit will be so great, those two things, you put them together and you have an almost unstoppable, inexorable kind of uh, proposition. And, uh, you know, one would hope that the government would get ahead of this and regulate it in the most strenuous way, which I think they probably will try to do. But, but when you think about it, all, all it would take would be one country unwilling to regulate it or eager to profit from it, and uh, the, the, you know the jig would be up. That's certainly some some bizarre scenarios to speculate yeah. on, <laughs> without a doubt. But scientifically possible. I mean, that's the thing. This is not science fiction. It's just um, it will in ten years be science fact, and I don't. You know, I can't predict what will happen or what we'll do with it. I have my own hopes, but I'm not. I'm not altogether optimistic. Sure. I'm curious, given that, as you mentioned earlier, there's a character in the novel that's obviously a, a nod or an homage to Ray Bradbury. Do you do you know if if he's actually seen the book? Well, here's what I do know. Um, you know, I had never read Ray Bradbury until I until I decided to use his name for this character, and my character who takes his name has never read him. So I, I try to be honest in that way. I did read him once I decided to use his name, and then I wrote him through his agent, mm-hmm. and then I sent him a copy of the book. And in the book, right up top in, in my acknowledgments, I apologized to him for appropriating his name and 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 make it clear that that it was meant to be an homage and not an exploitation. Now I don't. I haven't heard from him, and um, for all I know, he doesn't care one way or the other. And if I were if I were him, I wouldn't care either. So, right. As I mentioned, the Bradbury Report is a novel, but you've also had short stories published in a variety of publications, including the New Yorker and the annual Best American Short Stories anthology. Do you have a preference between writing short stories or novels? I, I'm afraid I have the most. Uh, uh, decided preference. I I was a short story writer for the first 10 or 12 years of my writing life. Um, I, of those, in, in those 10 years, I published maybe 12 or 13 stories, nine of which were collected in the book Dating Miss Universe that came out in 2000, which did quite well. It won a number of pretty significant awards, and I, w- I was pleased with the volume. But I have to tell you, um, I, I find writing short stories just really unbearable. Uh, I found it um, so painful, so tense. I, I find the form. Now, this I'm only speaking of myself. For me, it's it, it's like suffering from constipation. I, I I I I feel so constrained and so nervous. They're so delicate and um, so easy to. Uh, wreck with one false move or one um, false sentence and the pressure just finally got to me and I'm so slow when I write a short story so a story would take me six months and I figured I said to my I calculated that I could write a novel in the time it would take me to write four stories which turns out not to be quite true (laughs) I can write a novel somewhere between two and in two and three or three years because I'm I'm steady, but I'm slow. 
So, I, you know, I, I just gave it up. I, I don't even like to read them much anymore, Jeff. I mean, there are stories that I return to over and over again, and I, I admire Grint, and I admire, you know, any number of contemporary short story writers, but I, I don't envy them the form. Sure. I know that you taught writing for many years. What advice do you do you offer to aspiring writers who may be listening? Well, I, I, I want to be really careful about this. I, I think when when a writer starts talking about the way he works and and um, holding it up as a kind of model or an example of, of the way one might work, I think it's really dangerous. I, my my thought is that a writer, if if he or she is going to be a writer, um, has got to discover for him or herself the way in which he. I hate to do all these he or she's he or she's he or she works best, and forget about what other writers say about their working habits or methods. So that would be my first advice: is to is to find your own rhythms, your own what works for you best. Figure out and what works for you. Yeah, and don't covet uh, what you know. What you hear other writers say about their work. I mean, when a writer says he works from eight till five every day, yeah, you, know, you know, first I don't believe it, and second, if it's true, it's not the way I can work. I, I wouldn't get anything done after the first three hours because I'd be so blasted. I, I you know, I can, I'd, I'd barely be able to speak. So, I mean, I think you have to discover for yourself. The way you work, and be and be wary of of this kind of uh, it's not platitudinous, but it's it, it is um, it's it's facile advice. The second thing uh, that well, the only other thing I can say is, you know, when I when I taught writing students, and I I, I taught them at all levels from freshmen in college to MFA students, you know, really aspiring writers who aspire to be professionals. I was astonished and dismayed to see how little they'd read. And though it's possible, I imagine, to emerge, you know, uh, to to make your career out, out of whole cloth and not have read anything, to be a kind of noble mm-hmm. savage, it seems to me that, that the, the surer way, and, and certainly the more interesting way, is to read as much of the literature that precedes you as you can, and maybe not so much, which is the temptation of the literature that is contemporary with you, because that can be um, daunting and, uh, you know, discouraging, and also, I think, um, too too powerful a kind of influence. Uh, You know, there are writers, for instance, you know this as well as I do, in each generation, there are writers who seem to determine the way fiction is written for five or six years, and editors all over the country say things like, I like your story, I only wish it were more Carver-esque. <laughs> you know, and so you, you, you want to be careful. You know, there, there are always strong writers around whose, whose voice, if not imitatable, is at least suggestible. Or, or suggestive, and if you are suggestible, then then you get into trouble. So I, I think it's safer and finally more interesting to read, oh, you know, 
Ford, Maddox Ford and earlier rather than sort of be au and up-to-date on everything that comes out from Jonathan Wetham and, and, and Michael Shaven, even though these guys are terrific. You know, they're terrific. But they didn't get to be terrific, I, su- I suspect, by, you know, following the trends. Sure. And so you just it, mentioned it, that some of your, your students were not as widely read as you would have hoped that they would be. If you had a student who came to you and, and said, you know, what should I read? You you just mentioned Ford Maddox Ford and and before before him. Do you have other authors that you that you would recommend or that that you enjoy reading? Well, yeah, I do. I, I mean, I I did a PhD in English at Princeton, so I went through the whole canon, sort of piece by piece. Um, and and the books that moved me and influenced me profoundly are not likely to or not certainly not necessarily going to be the books that work that way for other people but but sure. you know and any any writer i would mention i would regret to mentioning not mentioning another one tomorrow so i'm i'm reluctant to do it i i suppose the writer that i will that i would live and die by you know that i would have no qualms recommending to anyone is henry james and i would say that you know to of the vast majority of the people to whom I recommended him, he would be uh, insufferable, insufferable and unreadable. And <laughs> and I don't. That's not a value judgment on my part. It's a, it, it's just a description. And so then, if that person came to me and said, "I can't read this stuffy, ponderous, um, you know, punctilious guy," I would I would listen and then find another writer to replace James with that might speak more nearly to that writer. Um, but, you know, I... Do you have a sense of, is, is Henry James being read today? What, what's your, what's oh, your sure, gut? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Um, though I think, you know, in, in, in the classes where I've tried to teach him, I've resorted, and I've always felt guilty about this, I've resorted to teaching the shorter pieces, you know, Daisy Miller, the, the old chestnut turn of the screw that everybody, you know, that everybody uses in their classrooms because it's so easy to teach, not because it's, it's particularly great, but it's, you know, it's, you can, any idiot could teach that book to students who hadn't read it before. And, but I, I'm reluctant, you know, to try to teach Wings of the Dove, for instance, to a, a class that had never read James, it would shut the semester down. <laughs> And it'd be like teaching Ulysses, you know, which I've done. But when I've done it, I've taught that book and only that book for the semester. Right, right. Well, what's next for you? Are you working on another novel now? Yeah, I'm always, sadly, I, I mean, I'm just, you know, at a certain point, it's like, it's like the, 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 like running. If you don't, if I don't write, on any given day, and I'm not saying I spend eight hours doing it. If I don't spend a couple of hours at least looking at the pages and thinking about what I, what I might do when I start writing, then I feel like a bum. I feel like I have no purpose, no use, and I and in in between books, you know, I think about a book before I start to write it for a long time, mm-hmm. and in between books, I'm now I've got a novel being. Eight, what, what do you call it? Agented. An agent is trying to sell one of my novels that's finished, and I'm about 300 pages into another one. So I'm fairly productive, but I need a lot of time between novels to think and take notes 
on my thoughts and have a conversation with my notes and then have another conversation until the book feels complicated enough for me so that I'm and, and I thought deeply enough about it so that I'm ready to start. Not that I know everything about it and not that everything I thought isn't subject to change. But but in that interval, from the time I quit writing one and start writing another, it gets to the point where I'm dangerous to those I love. And, you know, if I don't start writing soon, um, I'd have to move out because I get so uh, edgy and, um, and uh, bewildered. And I don't know if anybody else has had that experience. I suspect they have. Uh, I'm sure they have. Well, again, we've been speaking with Stephen Polanski, author of The Bradbury Report. His new novel is available in bookstores now. Thanks, Stephen. Jeff, thank you. This is Lee Child, and I'm listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thanks for listening to my latest interview. If you like what you heard, I would really appreciate a review of the podcast in iTunes. It's really simple. All you have to do is go to the iTunes store, and it takes a minute or two to leave a quick review of the podcast. And that way, more people can find the podcast, because the more reviews and ratings a podcast has in the iTunes store, the more they feature it and the more prominently they feature it. So hope you enjoyed the interview. Until next time, read some good books and support your local independent bookstore, and I'll be back soon with another interview with a writer that you enjoy reading. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.